0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Be You Mum podcast. I'm Annie, mum, wife, nutritional therapist, music lover, and believer that animal print will never go out of fashion. I believe that we are at our most happiest and healthiest when all parts of ourselves are aligned and singing in harmony, the mind, body, heart, and spirit. For me, like most, motherhood has been life-changing it has opened up so many opportunities to learn more about myself and grow and become a better version of me and generally better human being. So this is what this podcast is all about. Conversations with awesome people who will inspire, inform and empower you to be more you at your brightest and best. Just like health and happiness, I believe there is no one-size-fits-all approach to motherhood. Learning to better understand, love and be yourself is one of the greatest gifts we can give our children. So I hope you will join me on this podcast journey of self-discovery, self-growth and self-love because when we connect with ourselves and step into our personal power, our mummy magic can truly shine. So please keep listening and remember, always be more you. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Be You Mum podcast with me, Annie Breen. This week, I am so excited to be speaking to Anya Homer. We have been trying to sort this interview out for some time, and finally, we've got it together, so I'm so happy about that. Anya is the baby reflux um, lady, and she is bringing clarity and, um, to the confusion around baby reflux. Her ebook, her information on social media is incredible. She's got a large following. She shares so much useful, but also really understandable and excuse the pun, easy to digest information for parents out there around the confusion of reflux. So we're really going to delve into that um, subject today. So Anya, thank you so much for joining me. I am delighted to be here, Annie. As you said, we've been trying to get this together for
1: several months now, and I'm delighted that actually one of the opportunities of the the pandemic is that I have a much more flexible diary at home. I can say, kids, go to daddy for the moment. He's not working today. I'm going to do a podcast interview. So it's been amazing, actually. And I keep looking for the opportunities where I find them.
0: Amazing, yeah, and, and I'm actually hid away in my bedroom. Anya's hid away in her office. So, <laughs> if we do have any um, interruptions, or <laughs> this is real mum life, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, would you mind just starting off by introducing yourself and just telling us your journey to becoming the baby reflex lady? I'm sure there's um, an amazing story behind that.
1: There is, and I will. I will tell you a very much shortened version because the full version can be quite horrific, but actually is quite long. There was so many ups and downs. What I will say is that my journey to who I am today actually began when I was born. And looking back now and understanding things that happened in my relationship with my mom, with a breastfeeding relationship, with my teeth development, all of these things, Actually, influence how I communicate with clients now. But back in 1999, I started studying engineering of all things, mechanical manufacturing, engineering, and maths. I worked in large blue chip companies for 14, 15 years, being a professional pattern spotter. In 2012, I graduated with a licensee in acupuncture with traditional Chinese medicine background, including nutrition, which was when my eyes really opened to. What our bodies already know innately, and relying on myself and my own observations of what's going on for me as being actually true for me, and to use that to inform my own decisions for myself. I continued working in the corporate world, and funnily enough, the engineering background and the traditional Chinese medicine have come together really, really nicely. Because in everything I've done, I've always you know, looked at problems with the only question that ever matters. What's causing this problem? What's causing this problem? And another one, what is causing the problem? And when we understand what's causing a problem, we can resolve it. So in 2013, I became a mom. I was extremely excited until my daughter was 16 hours old, at which point I felt the loneliest I've ever been in my life. I was in the hospital. It was... 1 or 2 a.m. My daughter had been born at some time in the morning. I can't actually remember, which I really should do. But I, my husband had treated me to one of the private rooms, you know, take some time. It was, it was really nice. However, my little girl would not be out of my arms. And I would fall asleep with her in my arms. Within five minutes, I'd get a midwife coming in, gently easing her out of my hand, putting her in the little crib beside me. And five minutes later, she would wake up screaming. And I'd have to start the whole thing again. My nipples were red raw. The only thing I could do to seemingly ease my, my babba's screams was to feed her. So I was in constant pain. And at one stage, a midwife came into the room and asked me if I would in the middle of the morning, go to the other end of the maternity ward to the common room because my baby screams was waking everybody else on the ward. And I should understand that these mums had given birth and they needed to rest. So that really got me in my heart going, but there's something wrong with my baby. Like why, why is she just constantly crying? So when my husband rang at half eight the next morning, it was like, just get up here, get us out of here, because nobody is listening to me. And I just wanted to get home. Mm. The lack of sleep, the inability of my daughter to lay flat, the constant screaming continued for months. She was six weeks old when the health visitor came around and told me that I was being too soft, I was carrying her all the time, I was making her out of my own back, which I knew instinctively wasn't right. I was also desperate for help from the people I thought should know better. I was told she was colicky, that she was stubborn, and that I needed to let her cry it out and learn to sleep. Once I let her cry for 20 minutes before my heart literally broke and I had to get up and scoop her up. My complete lack of sleep understandably led to postnatal depression rather quickly. Five and a half months, I was using the wonderful Dr. Google, (laughs) who accurately described, I think I maybe scrolled to like page 17 of the results this time on whatever I was searching. But I found an Australian website, RISA, which is amazing, or Isa.org, I think, where they described my daughter's symptoms like nobody ever had before. And I rang the doctor. That was a Saturday night. I rang the doctor on Monday morning and I think my baby's got silent reflux. And she said, yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I was on a high going, great. What do I do with this now? And she's like, nothing. She'll go right of it. And I went from, you know, over two days, I had found my answer. I was going to get help. I was delighted that there was an end in sight. And all of a sudden it was shut down going, no, you just have to put up with it. A few months later, I discovered cow's milk proteinology, which I'd never heard of. Removed diet, dairy from my diet completely and got some improvements. And in the September, by the September of that year, my daughter was nine months old, I think, at that stage. I was starting to try every diet on the planet. From starting off with the Ted Sears, or the the Dr. Sears Ted Total Elimination Diet, uh, I tried GAPS, I tried Whole30, I tried SED, I tried being a carnivore, a vegan, a pescatarian. Um, In everything I tried, I would get some results but never got any consistency so i started to do what i did as an engineer and literally gather the data and track everything like my happy place was always in front of a spreadsheet so the more data i could get the better it was like my husband <laughs> it was my happy place and in truth my i just needed to know what was going on yeah. at a deeper level to figure it out within three weeks i had identified oats apples and potatoes as being disaster zones for my daughter and I when I put them out of my diet as well as dairy I had a a a much improved baby but it wasn't perfect yet and I got to this stage and I don't suggest anybody goes here because my journey is the experiment of how I got to where I am but at one stage I was eating avocado chicken and butter squash. Uh And I did that for about three weeks. I was so scared to eat anything else because I now had a baby who was happy and a baby who was sleeping. And whenever she woke up at night, it was from habit. And all she needed was a pat on the back to reassurance that mom was there and she'd go back to sleep, not an hour and a half of screaming and pain. So being an engineer, I needed to know why this was happening you know why were these foods okay and why were the seemingly normal the sweet potato the potato the apple the oats the, the baby rice why were these causing a problem because surely these are the foods we're told to feed babies first and i came across the most wonderful research paper uh in published by the world health organization back in the 90s written by a guy called james Aker, which describes the natural development of a baby's digestive system. This was like a light bulb going, oh, babies don't have the same digestive enzymes as adults. Well, that makes sense. In the same way that babies don't just get up and walk, they have a development curve to go through to get to their stage of maturity. So I looked at the molecular level of foods and started to figure out those foods we could bring back into my diet, and it's my daughter's diet, and life became so so much easier. And that was my big woohoo, I know what's going on. And then I'm almost there, Annie. <laughs> my second, yeah, my second daughter was born um a year later. So she that was 2015. First two weeks was bliss. I had like the cleanest diet on the on the planet. I had loads of energy, the pregnancy was healthy. And then two weeks in, things started to get a bit pear-shaped. By nine weeks, all hell was breaking loose. And I had no idea what was going on. Turns out uh, I had a tongue tie, which I discovered at that point, and that she had a tongue tie. And when we got that resolved, that instantly she was a different child for two days. And then things went pear-shaped again. And it turns out because I hadn't been given aftercare to do for the tongue release wound and any support afterwards, the wound had stuck and it all became bad again. So we got it done a second time, which is so emotional for a mum. But I will say a tongue time release is far more emotionally painful for a mum than it is for an infant. So much more. And after the second time we did aftercare and we did a load of support to make sure the wound didn't stick. And I understood her allergies at the time. I understood intolerances. I had a way of trialing food in my diet that wouldn't cause all hell to break loose. And so I I kind of got the infancy that I lost with my, that I didn't experience with my first child. I had with my second daughter, you know? Then a year later, we got a sleep consultant involved just for help, conversation with this wonderful girl, who solved our sleep issues. She's like, you need to write a book, you know so much. I'm like, "Mm, really? She goes, yeah, you need to write a book. And after three years of postnatal depression, I figured out that the only way to really escape my postnatal depression was with a vow to myself to use everything I'd learned and figured out to help as many other mums and babies avoid what I experienced for for those three years. And that's how we became the baby reflux lady.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's an amazing story. And it kind of gives me goosebumps. You know, I just think it's so powerful, like sharing your story to help others because it can feel so lonely. You can feel so confused and in the dark. It's the unknown, isn't it? And actually most of the comfort, especially for me, my, my challenges were similar, but different came from other people that had walked in those shoes. Yeah um and doing my own research becoming inquisitive like you know that felt powerful empowering opposed to just you know going to others and being told which sometimes felt okay but sometimes didn't so that is incredible there's so much I want to ask you and especially around (laughs) the food but we'll we'll come to that um amazing and your ebook that's available isn't it for people it is
1: it is it's out of the paperback as well however i will say that the paperback because it's a print-on-demand book um at the moment of the pandemic the delivery times are about three to four weeks so the ebook is available instantly across all major platforms
0: okay brilliant and um so let's just go right back what is reflux if you could just give us kind of an overview to what it is and then obviously there's some really common symptoms that are related to it and there may be some not so common ones so when you did your investigations your research you came across that uh, is it risa.org that yeah. suddenly started to fall into place so what did you find what are you seeing as being the common symptoms not so common and what is it reflux
1: yeah so the First of all, it's clarifying what reflux is. And this is really, really important. And I will also say what it isn't. Reflux is very, very simple. It's the regurgitation of stomach contents, which could be just food at the time. It could be food mixed with stomach acid, or it could be just stomach acid. It's the regurgitation of these into the food pipe. That is technically all that reflux is. And it can be small amounts of reflux. So it literally comes into the the lower end of the esophagus and doesn't come up as far as the mouth. Or it can come up as far as being projectile vomit and hitting the opposite side of the room and anywhere in between. And that's where we see the difference between reflux and silent reflux. So silent reflux is everything that reflux is, except it doesn't come up to the mouth. There's no vomiting with it. Very often we'll see babies who swallow a lot, who, who may have, silent reflux which was the case in my eldest daughter what tends to happen is that babies who are generally unsettled but deemed healthy otherwise or who have been diagnosed as having colic and by the magical 12 weeks haven't grown out of it will get re-diagnosed and reclassified as having reflux and they will typically present with lower abdominal discomfort so bloating really bad sleep lots of kicking and thrashing of their legs lots of pulling their knees up squirming raining up their faces and going really red in their face and that will get diagnosed as reflux that can be as a result of some of the symptoms that are going on with reflux but technically speaking it's not actually the regurgitation itself What reflux truly is, is a symptom, okay? Reflux is not a disease. I know the medics describe it as gore or gore, so gastroesophageal reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease. And the only difference, according to the formal guidelines, is that it becomes a disease when it's causing marked distress. And typically, doctors will do nothing for gore. If it's not causing distress, they're not going to do anything about it. However, it can cause an awful lot of distress to mum, even if baby isn't in constant pain or discomfort with it. So very often we'll hear the term happy spitters. And a happy spitter can cause a hell of a lot of stress to a mum who is literally going up, cleaning vomit up all day, every day, and has a laundry pile bigger than she can cope with. There is a reason for the constant regurgitation, this ongoing vomit. And when we understand what the, what the cause is, we can do something for it. So some of the symptoms we'll see is we'll have almost every time baby will be unsettled in some way, shape or form. They perhaps can't sleep or they can't stitch their sleep cycles together. So very often we'll have babies who will always nap for 40 to 45 minutes or 30 to 40 minutes religiously and when they get to the coming out of that sleep cycle they don't go into another one so we're not getting babies who nap for an hour and a half to three hours like some some such lucky parents have (laughs) or they'll wake up and there'll be lots of squirming and grunting um 73 percent of babies actually with reflux suffer from wind like uh, gas lower abdominal gas and tons of farts they just fart like they fart like a dad, basically. And that, it's important though, because it's something to watch out for. People laugh and, you know, farts are funny. Mm. However, they're a really important sign for us with our babies. Yeah, when, when our body farts, it's doing it for a reason. There's air inside there that shouldn't be there. And when we understand what's causing that air and gas, we can do something about it to resolve it. And especially in babies, the gas becomes trapped gas because they don't have the muscular strength and coordination to move stuff through the digestive system. So it builds up and it causes them physical discomfort and sometimes pain. And I don't fully understand why, but actually trapped gas contributes to constipation. I have my theories about it, but that's another thing we see in these children as well. We'll often see babies with feeding difficulties, And I'm not saying that it's feeding difficulties as being formally diagnosed because I have had so many clients come to me where the doctor has said, there's nothing wrong there. And actually mom feels that it's difficult to feed baby. If it's difficult to feed your child and they have reflux, that is one of the biggest clues we need to be looking at. So babies who don't want to have milk, be it from breast or bottle, If they even when they're hungry, they can't seem to to latch effectively, or they latch really well and then they come off and they seem to be in pain, or they're arching, they're moving, they're but just not relaxed, so not happy, happy babies and floppy, happy babies. Mm -hmm. They're some of the biggest symptoms we see. Then, not so common symptoms are symptoms that don't necessarily correlate directly to reflux, but are so related. I mean, you'll understand, Annie, that. The human body is a system of systems. Yeah. So we need to look at everything. So eczema reflux, uh, eczema is related to reflux directly. Um, hives, urticaria, nappy rash. Um, what else have we got? We've got cold-like symptoms. So very often babies will, mum will describe their babies as having, they've got this constant cold, have they got blocked nose, they find mm-hmm. it difficult to breathe. That can be caused directly by reflux. Mm. not necessarily from an allergy. So it's a, it is sometimes a sign of allergies or an intolerance and the body's just trying to respond to that. But it can also be that there is a stomach acid coming up to the back pastures behind the, the neck and throat and it's the nasal pastures. Mm. These pastures, are our body produces mucus to protect itself mm. and therefore the mucus production can cause the rhinitis or the runny nose or the blocked nose or stuffiness as well. So all of these things, actually everything that's going on for a child needs to be looked at. I I call it like as parents, we're playing Sherlock Holmes and I've got a list of over 80 different symptoms and behaviors that I look at for every child we work with because reflux is a symptom. It occurs with, you know, the causes are, there's about 20 different causes. Mm. And so the one size fits all approach doesn't work. We need to understand exactly what's going on. And because reflux is a symptom, we need to understand it in relation to everything else that's going on for every child.
0: Yeah. I love how you describe that because um, one of my favorite quotes when I'm talking about the gut brain connection is that the gut's not like Las Vegas. What goes on in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. And essentially, we're talking about the digestive system. So you're absolutely right. Like all these symptoms, it can feel confusing. They're not necessarily typical gut symptoms. They can be the allergy, the mucus, all these different things. But it comes back to that if that's not functioning. And yeah, like when you were just talking about the gas and constipation, I was thinking that any inflammation in the gut stops the production of serotonin, which is produced in the gut, 90% of it. And that is what controls the peristaltic movement of the bowel. And I know we relate that neurotransmitter to our happy hormone, but it also moves our bowel, um, which I see a lot in testing adults and some children, uh, that 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 could be a potential problem. And um, what else was I just going to say there? I was going to say something else. I've forgotten uh, sleep, sleep as well. Like if you support, or resolve any gut digestive issues that can have a massive impact on sleep. Um, 100%. And I've seen people, you've probably seen it too. You know, you take deal with food allergies deal with imbalances in the gut and then suddenly that and obviously with the reflux and then their sleep improves and it's not yes. necessarily always the magical answer our kids are changing all the time the environment influence it times of the month blah de blah but it, it can have a huge impact um and then of course sleep sleep deprivation feeds into poor gut health as well because that's when our gut and digestive system do the housekeeping so you almost have this cycle yes. So what do you see the underlying causes? I mean, this is kind of the really interesting bit, right? And you said there's, yeah. loads. there's loads. There is loads. I actually did a, a post on
1: my Instagram feed yesterday. What causes them? I just list them. People are going, huh? <laughs> oh, okay. Right. So now we see why, why it's not so straightforward. So I'll, I'll give you a few of them. Some of these are direct causes. Some of them will be contributory causes. So things that happen... That then contribute. So it's really important. This is why I say to every parent I work with, like their babies are my clients. But actually, it's we need to understand everything that's going on. So it can start in pregnancy. It can start with mum's health and her gut health. It can be influenced by baby's physical position in utero and even baby's size in relation to mum. So if if mum is very petite and baby's very big, you know, baby can literally get in very uncomfortable positions in utero, and so when they're born, their body just isn't in balance with itself. Um, If we have babies who were breech presentation around, was it 34 weeks where an ECV has been attempted, irrespective of whether it is successful or not. And this is when an obstetrician literally tries to physically push baby into the head down position around 35 weeks. If that happens, that can cause physical trauma to baby's body that then leads to imbalances and poor latch and uh, baby drinking air, which is one of the major direct causes of reflux. We have birth trauma. So if there's induction, if there's a Ventus and forceps or assisted birth, they can all introduce trauma to baby's body. Now these things are very, very important, right? Don't get me wrong. They must, you know, they're done because they support safe birth. However, we need to understand the context that it's not good enough to just leave baby after these very powerful interventions. We need to support their recovery from these as well, appropriately. We have antibiotics being taken by breastfeeding mom or by baby themselves, contribute to gut health. And of course, the the natural immaturity of a baby's digestive system can contribute to reflux it can cause allergies to present so that and i say present they're not true allergies they're not something that baby's going to carry through life and i don't like the phrase of oh it's cow's milk protein allergy baby will grow out of it mm-hmm. baby won't grow out of it their digestive system will mature so that they can then digest these complex proteins and carbohydrates so we need to get really much more clear on our language when we're talking about our bodies and how our babies grow and develop We have poor latch, tongue-tie, as I mentioned already. We've got foods that mum is eating if she's breastfeeding. We have some of the ingredients in formula uh, milks that directly impact the ability of baby's body to digest them appropriately. One of the ingredients I always tell people to steer away from is maltodextrin. I don't believe it has any place in a baby's diet. It is a highly, highly highly reformed white powder derived from starch. It says derived from potatoes or rice, tapioca, uh, corn. However, it has a zero nutritional content. It is known to prove gastrointestinal disturbances, you know, wind, flatulence, trapped gas, pain, irritation, inflammation of in the gut, and is a known allergen in its own right. As well as being a thickener, it contributes to constipation and Um, yeah, it just isn't a great thing to be in a baby's body. It also knocks baby's microbiome out of of whack as well. We have, uh, I can't remember if I said poor latch and tongue tie as being direct causes of reflux. We have some genetics and then we have some of the rarer but important causes of reflux as well. We've got pyloric stenosis and stomach ulcers. This is when Uh, the pylorus, the the valve between the stomach and the small intestine clamps itself shut. That usually presents in babies between two and six weeks more frequently in babies who are formula fed. And it is one that is absolutely vital. It's immediate microsurgery intervention that fixes it. And it's gone. However, it's really important that that, uh, when we see some of the red flag symptoms that I, I teach all my students about, that we go to a doctor to check out for it as well. We've got cleft lip and palate babies who have cleft lip and palate because they cannot form a latch around their bottle. They're going to be drinking air all the time. For these babies, reflux is a, it's almost, a, you're going to have this while the cleft lip and palate is unresolved until the surgery has been has been complete. And many that's why many of these babies end up being tube fed for the first few months until, or maybe years, until their surgery is complete. Mm -hmm. And also we have histamine sensitivities and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is becoming more and more prevalent in older babies. So they don't happen in babies under about a year. But where we see babies who've been on the gastric gastric acid suppression medications for a longer time, these are things like omeprazole, renistine, fametidine, Than Pantoprazole, any of those that end in Prazole, these medications then start to be the cause of the ongoing reflux rather than resolving it.
0: So there's a big list for (laughs) you. And that's amazing. Like a few things, I'll just start start with the end. I see the results of people being on protein pump inhibitors and Mm. stomach acid blocking drugs later on. So we're talking about, you know, I remember... When Bonnie was a baby, or you just see very, very young babies being given these acid-blocking um, drugs at yes. a really young age, mm-hmm. and essentially we need acid, right, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to break down the food. It has a purpose, but also to keep our gut microbiome in balance. It's a communication mechanism between all of our other organs. To what enzymes we need, it's so important. It's not just yes. like something that comes back up and annoys us. Um, And it also makes me think, how can a baby have too much? You know, the the digestive system is, it takes two years, roughly. And it's all individual, of course, to mature. that that just does. It seems like a more adult problem. Um, And I, I love how you talk through the story, because I think, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, and I'm sure you can relate to this, that it's so easy to blame yourself It's so easy to think, what have I done wrong? Like, what am I not doing right? What am I missing here? Oh my God, is this something I've done? And we kind of turn in on ourselves and we become really blaming and, you know, shame. But actually, if you look at the story and you look at it through the eyes of personal growth, so even if you have been a mum before, each journey, each matrescence, as I like to call it, Mm -hmm. is different. We have a different experience. And if we're looking at as a growth journey, do you know, I'm not expected to know all of this, but I want to learn, then you can start to unpick exactly what you said. Like what happened at birth? How was it? Imagine being that baby being like squashed up. I think about that from time to time. (laughs) They're going to need some like cranial sacral. They're going to need something when they come out. You know, that's really... um, cooped up <laughs> and yeah. you just think about it like that in a much more compassionate way like how was the birth like even if it didn't quite go to plan what did happen what could have been the impact on you and baby and knowing this knowing this is really empowering from what you've just described it's like all these little things it's not always just one massive thing that causes something is it it's the accumulation mm-hmm. it's the journey it's these little pieces of the puzzle yeah but that's is that they're also the answers the answers you yeah. hold the answers you know tr- trust yourself and get the appropriate help like going to yourself um
1: yeah. i will uh, say annie i love the i love the puzzle analogy and i i used this actually last week because reflux really is a bit like a puzzle like reflux might be the little pink piece you get but when you look at the picture there's three places pink is on the jigsaw And when you start to understand other symptoms that are going on and other parts of the story that happen, you go, ah, this piece has now got pink and blue. So these go together. This one's got pink and blue and a little bit of green. So I now know that that goes in the bottom left hand corner of the puzzle. But it's only when you start to look at reflux with all of the other things that are
0: going on with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And health is one big, you know, kind of messy but beautiful picture. We're all different. There's no one size fits all. And it's looking at, you and your story and your journey and your piece yeah. of the puzzle and not looking outside of yourself what everyone else is doing because that could be different and that's where we get confused exactly. lost in Dr. Google and this is why I love how you have put all this information together because you have worked with so many different parents different people mothers dads um, yeah. and you've drawn on personal experience and of course the science behind it Um, and i and i keep i keep
1: learning like that's one of the things i love is that i keep learning more and more and more and there's a direct link like for example with histamine sensitivity in older babies and the uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth we discovered these a year and a half ago through working with clients going well what happened and it was again going we're missing something of the story here if it's not the obvious ones what is, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I remember working with a client and she said to me, My baby was happiest when we went on holidays. I said, Well, what happened? Oh, well, doctor gave us pyritin. I was like, Pyritin's an antihistamine. So, how did that affect their reflux? Mm. And we started to put it together and actually turns out this little guy had a histamine sensitivity. I don't like using the words histamine allergy, histamine intolerance because it's not, but it's actually his natural histamine levels were elevated when we got them under control and removed the PPI from his diet or from his, um, his life basically, because the gastric acid suppression medications increase histamine levels in the body. So this kid was presenting as being highly allergenic to everything. And all the doctor was doing was increasing the medication, which was in turn increasing the allergy response he was having. Mm. We removed all these when we understood the puzzle, all of a sudden this little guy, was a happy little baby free from reflux free from medication and eating everything except gluten and dairy
0: within three months yeah that you know that, and he was a very unique story that's amazing to hear and um and with the hist i mean antihistamines block stomach acid as well so you kind of have this um yeah perpetuating cycle you can see how things get worse and i'm a i'm a big um fan of histamine. i talk about histamine a lot but i think we relate it to allergy don't we but actually it's, it's a neurotransmitter we need it it helps protect us it's part of the immune system but a so lot important. of people yeah genetically can't don't have the enzymes to break it down some people eat too many histaminic foods which yeah. build up and some people can't clear it from the body. Um, and actually, a lot of what you describe with the tongue tie and some of the other kind of symptoms and histamine, they all get dealt with on a similar pathway. And some people need a little bit more help. So I'm talking about methylation, but it could be things yes. like certain foods that support that pathway. And there's so much will come onto food that we can do through food and um, nutrition. But it, it is, a, it is a web, it is a puzzle, and it it just is looking at those different pieces and how you can build your own picture, because then you can start, like you said, the why, we ask why, you find out what you're dealing with, and then you can start to pick away at it. And so I'm sure everyone is wanting to know what they can do. <laughs> so... And you said at the beginning, you talked about some food and you researched all the kind of molecular kind of um, structures of these foods, what's Mm. okay at certain ages, what the baby or body can deal with at that age. What, um, if someone was coming to you for the first time with this problem, what would be your first kind of thing? What would you look at?
1: So first thing I do with every single child is because, because of the list of causes, is I get my, par- my my clients, their parents, to fill out a detailed questionnaire and looking at all of those symptoms baby may or may not have, mm-hmm. how frequently they have them and how badly the intensity of the symptoms. Yeah. And I have, so there's a, there's a free symptoms tracker that every parent is free to download from my website to start playing Sherlock Holmes themselves. You know, it's to understand what are these 80 things we need to be looking at? And if your baby has them, Then we pick and choose those symptoms that are the worst in terms of intensity and most frequent. And we try and focus on those ones to resolve those and understand what's what's driving them. And when we focus on those, and there will always be three or four as a group, we focus on the underlying cause of those and resolving those typically resolves everything else. Amazing. Because we understand the relationship. But the, the underlying cause is always to, first of all, take a step back. And I know parents go, I want to change it now. It's like, no, we, we have to understand what we're going to change because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that um, when I was an acupuncturist, we'd, we'd go through everything that happens in somebody's life because you are today the accumulation of everything and all the experiences that have happened to you in your life, emotional, mental, physical everything your environment so we have to really understand where you are as a person and where your baby is as a person individual first and then take the appropriate action for some babies it will be food related other babies will have a more mature development uh, Mm. digestive development than others it's a curve in the same way that some babies will walk at nine months others might not bother until they're 19 months Mm. that range is normal Mm. you know it's not on day, the day your baby turns six months, they must be able to eat everything from your plate. The truth is a baby doesn't go from being able to thrive on a liquid only diet to suddenly having the ability to eat and digest every food on the planet. So when we take a step back and we look at introducing foods that they can digest easily and introducing foods that their body is designed to digest then they will thrive. And so I will say like, so people always ask me, what are the top best weaning foods? I do say we have to be careful. There is no one list to guarantee that these foods are safe for every child because everybody has the potential to have an allergy to absolutely anything else on the planet. So we need to do one thing at a time. But I love high quality fats. So avocados have got to be my number one food. The reason being is... Babies don't have any protein digestion capability in their stomach. Mm. Their stomach is designed to break down fats for the first two years of life in order to do the physical building of the brain that it needs to do. You know, it's the fastest growing time of the human brain and is the only time um, where there's this mass of physical building. You know, glucose is needed to fuel the brain, but in the first two years of life, we're actually building it. So that's why baby's digestive system is designed to get 55% of its calorie intake from fats. Their stomach is a little fat digestion machine. They're little ketogenic babies. Like they are, they will thrive on fats. The, the notion that we have that we need carbohydrates to fill us up is a learned experience. The feeling of fullness that we get as adults from carbohydrates is a learned thing. And I, I'm a testament to this because I'm currently eating a ketogenic diet. So I don't have any starchy carbs in my diet at all, but I have a different feeling of satiety because I can feel my stomach being physically full without being bloated and expanded by these carbohydrates that sort of expand when you add in more liquid. Yeah. So our babies, like avocados being a great first food, Egg yolks, if baby can tolerate them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pure brain food with choline and so many other just amazing stuff in them. And then ripe bananas. And it always has to be a ripe banana, otherwise the complex carbs in it will ferment and then cause more gas and wind and bloating to baby. And butternut squash. So they're my first three foods. And four, there was egg yolk in there. Mm-hmm. You can almost leave egg yolk a little bit later. It's a, it's a powerhouse of brain food.
0: Mm. But equally, people get nervous about it because eggs are an allergen, a potential allergen. I'll just, I, I just interject. I love, I love that because if we think about it like that, what's going on for a baby at that age? They're this big, and they have to grow. And this yeah. is a nervous system. Their brain, everything is about development, growing, building. We are building a human still. And yeah. I, I, and how many parents, and totally understandably, get hooked on filling them up? Are they hungry? Are they hungry? And it's all it that you know. I've been there. I've been there. But yeah. it's it's we forget that food is medicine food is necessary for the processes in the body to actually function. And it makes complete sense that they're designed at that age to digest fat because literally the brain's made out of fat. The cellular membranes is made out of omega-free fatty acids, you know, so it just makes complete sense, but it, it's not something that you would think about when you're in the midst of motherhood, you know, you're yeah. knackered, you're exhausted, your baby's got all these symptoms. So I just love the fact that you've spelt that out so clearly there and you go and have a go, you go and have a go yeah. with those foods and then that's part of the puzzle and maybe it helps a bit, maybe you need to investigate the other bits as well.
1: Yeah, I will say one of the things people uh, will come back to me and say my baby has, can't, they have a bad reaction to avocado. Two things with avocados. If, they, if baby has, like, so experiences constipation or has what parents like to call Play-Doh poo, it's generally because they're on a gastric acid suppression medication and their stomach acid is now not breaking down the fats to allow the body to use them effectively and this I mean that's so important for the actual development of children and this has not been researched at all which I think is a crime against babies you know the impact on reduced stomach acid and um, so that would be one reason why babies can't digest avocados if we see babies having a rash response then we need to have a little bit of a look and awareness about their histamine levels. Again, this might occur in babies who are on the gastric, those medications, those reflux medications first, just because it is, it's increasing and elevating that histamine levels that I, we already spoke about in the body a few minutes ago. When we're talking about things like butternut squash, like I know so many parents are told sweet potato as one of the best first foods and I disagree so the reason that some babies just can't digest complex carbohydrates, such as a sweet potato that is given and recommended as a first food is because they don't have this pancreatic amylase being produced. Our babies have their, their milk teeth is the sign that we can use as parents as the external gauge of their digestive maturity. And typically when babies have older milk teeth, around two to two and a half years old, this is when their body is at its highest level of pancreatic amylase production and therefore they're able to digest these complex carbohydrates. Now, before they're able to digest them, the big issues we see is that babies typically get really, really uncomfortable sleep. Like we'll have babies who are rolling around the cot all night. They move around the cot. Parents will describe them as like running laps of the cot at night. They can't lie still. They can't sleep restfully. And that is just because this ongoing digestive discomfort for them. So it's really important that we address this and change their foods because that, I mean, we've mentioned sleep so many times already, but babies need deep, restful sleep for their bodies to do the physical growth and development, as well as processing all the other emotional stuff that's going on for them, even for the physical growth and development for their body, they need to be able to have proper deep restful sleep and this is why the foods that we allow babies to have in the first instance should be foods their bodies can digest Mm -hmm. rather than so you know when it comes to people asking baby led weaning or purees i really don't have a preference i love the concept of baby led weaning where we let baby take the lead on how they eat on learning to hold foods and all the sensory development and letting baby take the lead on how much they eat, mm. but not necessarily giving baby a choice of everything that's on the table mm. because what parents can digest versus what their children can di- digest are two very different things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's so interesting you say that because I think generally, you know, um, we're a bit carb crazy. <laughs> like yes. You know, we, we are. And I think... Um, all foods, you know, I'm all about promoting a balanced diet, not cutting food groups out. But I do think generally we eat a few too many carbohydrates, and there's reasons behind that. And sometimes that behaviour can then be kind of projected outwards to our families. It's just natural. So it's it's just understanding what the body actually needs at that point of development to develop to build. Um, and it makes complete sense and absolutely digestion. We need to think about it as in all the way down, not just our stomachs and, um, it's amazing actually the more if I'd learned to chew my food how many years ago, I wouldn't be in half the digestive problems that I'm in. And it's because literally the act of chewing does, like you said, release those enzymes. It's called biotagging, I think. And the body, the mouth can literally tell the stomach what to expect. It's incredible. And how many of us as parents on the go, busy, stressed generally don't rest and digest as much as what we should. Um, so yeah that's really really interesting and and the fact that the microbiome we've talked about the bugs that Mm. kind of reside in our gut start in the mouth the oral microbiome is a very good indicator to what's going on further down so yeah i love that and then um so you've talked about food and you've talked about those main foods can people find this like on your page and stuff if they want to and obviously the ebook if they just want to explore that a little bit more
1: yeah, so the the ebook has the starter of it. I've created a reflux-free baby weaning or a food course. The weaning course is for for kids starting foods. The food course is for those already established on meals where they have that really just comfortable sleep and, and solids have made things worse rather than making them better. I don't publish a list of safe foods because there is no one size fits all mm-hmm. and we can't guarantee that all foods will be safe for all babies. what i teach is the process of introducing food slowly of teaching parents what signs to be looking for you know what constitutes a flare-up how do you introduce food safely Mm -hmm. if you see a flare up happening what do you do and where do you rein it in what's the impact of teething and how do we go through teething managing with solids you know and, and actually looking at everything And giving, so it's a six week course, but actually the foods are grouped. I've grouped pretty much all the major foods you can get into seven stages that cover six months, right up to two and a half years as your process of these are the types of foods you should be introducing in these, in this development range. Wow. But over the six, yeah, over the six weeks, I really want to teach people the process so that moms are completely confident in their food choices for their baby. And they know when to say, you know, me and my mother going, no beef for my daughter, please. And what do you mean, no beef? No beef. Don't put beef on her plate. She can't digest it. And my mother would go, oh, don't be silly. Of course she can. But I had the confidence to say, Mum, do not put that on her plate or you will not be babysitting her ever again. Yeah. You know, and I had the strength of character to do that because I was so confident. With the process, I knew the process and the structure I had around my daughter's food worked for us. And when we stepped outside it, um, I like I knew what foods I could try simply by looking at them. Going, yeah, we could try mango, or I'm not going near that one for the moment because I don't want three nights of sleeplessness. That, you know, and it's not a rigid system. Yeah, the process and the confidence then allows parents to choose if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And having that clarity brings confidence, having that confidence allows you to communicate with others um, about the dietary needs. And you're just, you know, you say exactly as it is. There's no kind of um, you're not worried about it or causing anyone any kind of bother. You're just I think that's amazing. There's two questions I want to ask breastfeeding because I see this a lot that mums get so worried that they're passing something to their kid their kid is reacting and they stop breastfeeding early and elimination diets for mum what are your thoughts around that and changing mum's diet and I know you've covered so much but yeah. yeah yeah so breastfeeding is magical if you
1: can do it if breastfeeding is difficult there is something going on for your baby that once it's resolved, it can make it easier. So if breastfeeding is difficult, if you can't do it, if baby isn't able to release milk, if there is a, a, you know, if your letdown is too fast and it's, your baby's not able to cope with it, these are all signs that there's something going on for baby that we can address and resolve because breastfeeding should be easy. It should be easy. And I understand there are lots and lots of reasons that mums can and cannot breastfeed. So there isn't, you know, it's not about being judgmental. It's about understanding what's going on. Breast milk does not cause reflux. It never has, it never will. What can contribute to reflux is something in the breast milk. So the Leche League who are my go-to gurus for breastfeeding research, for years, they have been saying that anything that gets in, that is small enough to pass across the intestinal blood barrier is small enough to pass from the blood into breast milk. So therefore, what mom eats directly affects her milk. Now, what you're not going to have, but you know, you're not going to test your breast milk. You are not going to get lumps of potato in it. Mm. You're not going to get lumps of beef in it. You're not going to be able to identify foods as individual things. What happens, like this is where we go to the molecular level we're getting the polysaccharides, the oligosaccharides and the disaccharides into the breast milk. And we're getting complex amino acids into the breast milk. And these are the elements that baby then can't digest because they're still too complex for their digestive
0: system. Yeah. So it's it's the proteins, isn't it, Anya? It's the the proteins for exactly the reason you've described that they don't have the enzymes, the capability, the equipment, if you like, to deal with that and yes. as they get older and their digestive system matures they will be able to handle that but it's these little yes. proteins that pass through that intestinal barrier that then can also get into the breast milk
1: yeah and what we do see what i am seeing i've saw, seen for years is that the complex carbohydrates can do a similar thing mm-hmm. so the proteins are the ones that drive allergy responses mm-hmm. it's the carbohydrates the really complex carbohydrates and too much in one go of the complex carbohydrates that can influence the amount of um, wind and fermentation in baby's gut. Yeah. So elimination diets have their role. I don't like to call it elimination because that's, that word is too final. First of all, I will always read a baby's symptoms first. Sorry, my printer is deciding to wake up. I will always read all of baby's symptoms first because that will tell us whether there is likely to be a reaction to something in mom's diet or not. I don't suggest moms just eliminate foods straight away because if, if that's not the underlying cause of baby's reflux, it'll make no difference. And mom will be trying this and trying this and seeing no results and therefore becomes very, very disheartening. Yeah. So we need to make sure that first of all, mum's foods are causing an issue. Then what I like, I, the best and fastest way to do it is eliminate lots of foods and then quickly rebuild Mm -hmm. because what we do is we get baby to a place of great within, like if we make a drastic change to mum's diet, we will see a 60%, if it's the right thing to do, we'll see a 60% improvement within two days. It's a very quick turnaround. And then we start to rebuild mom's diet. Pay attention to the foods that cause a problem to baby and go, right, we now know that that one caused an issue. Park that, like for example, beef. We know that caused an issue, park it. Or a duck, you know, one of the complex proteins. And we build up mom's diet over a period of three to four weeks so that, it's not an ongoing, really restrictive diet. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah. No, it really does. It really does, and um, I don't really like elimination diet. I just think it's too complicated. And you know, I think to describe it like that, absolutely take, strip it back, add it in you know, I, I just think keeping it really, really simple, but you're absolutely, it's looking at it in that bigger picture as yeah. as well. And so often I do see that kind of disheartened, they take everything out, nothing changes, and then they stop breastfeeding. And then, you know, and, and that can just, yeah, be really, really kind of distressing, because it's almost like the power's taken away. It wasn't your choice, but you yeah. had, to, you felt you had to do it. So um, yeah, absolutely. And of course, the carbohydrates, the complex carbohydrates you were talking about, is mm-hmm. this your FODMAPs, carbohydrate, your olisaccharide, Oli are they different? It does, again, it doesn't fit straight into FODMAP. Okay. It. It's <laughs> just so people can understand a little bit about these carbohydrates. Yes. Yeah. It's it's most
1: things that if we see as a mum, if we think they're a carbohydrate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um it's reducing the amount we have of them and i like the the baby reefers latest survival guide book walks through this process in much more step by step detail um because i don't like just saying this is what you need to do you know and i'm really keen that people don't just start an elimination diet without understanding that that's the right thing to do because it's so disheartening but we we bring it back the things like potatoes rice. I don't agree with uh, too much rice anyway for babies because the levels of the inorganic arsenic in it, I think it should be avoided until kids are about five. Um, But pasta, wheat, not just because of the complex protein of gluten, but wheat as a complex carbohydrate itself. These things can contribute to constipation in baby's body as well. You know, if we look at foods that if they're going to soak up fluid really well, they're the really complex ones.
0: Yeah. So
1: foods where you can add in uh, like a piece of bread, if you dip it in in soup, it's going to soak up all the liquid. Yeah. So when you eat that, and even when when your babies eat that as kids, it is going to continue soaking up fluids as it moves through their body and therefore contribute to constipation. Potatoes, again, you can put milk on potatoes, you can put butter on it. It just soaks it up. These are the really, really starchy complex carbohydrates that we want to reduce massively, and then gradually reintroduce in measured portion sizes. Yeah, along with things like legumes because they're a complex carbohydrate combined with a complex protein.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, it's it's about having a very structured approach to things.
0: Yeah and and actually you know if we think about the sort of postnatal depletion that comes with um you know birthing feeding Mm -hmm. growing a baby that the diet that the mum I I say should there's no should or shouldn't you know there's no strict rules but would benefit from is probably similar like really rich lovely fats omega-free fats for our brain as well and all the color the antioxidants you know it's those sorts of foods that we need more of yes quality protein quality carbohydrates as well um but you find that I always think you know Support mum with really young babies. Look at mum's health. Support her gut health. Support her gut lining integrity. Yep. Give her the nutrients she needs to replenish and restore. And just that alone, and you know, supporting stress levels and all these things that can impact, can really really help as as well as looking. Yeah, massively. You- I mean, eat all the colours of the rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Oh goodness, there's so much um so much we could talk about <laughs> <laughs> i can literally talk about this stuff for hours <laughs> just then sorry any red flag symptoms so if someone came to you they suspect it's this and they want your help and you do this really comprehensive questionnaire mm-hmm. what would distinguish between sort of more medical um yes go to the gp is is there anything that parents yeah. should be looking out for on that there's a few things always should go to gp or even any. So
1: if baby has blood in their vomit, so hematemesis and it's unexplained. So explained blood and vomit would be a breastfeeding baby where mum has cracked bleeding nipples all the time yeah, and that she's checking that they're still cracked and bleeding. Or if baby has had a recent tongue tie resolution and is swallowing blood from that. And I mean, recent is in the last 24 hours. Anything after that, it, the bleeding shouldn't be happening. So it needs to be checked out. There is one other cause when baby would have blood in their vomit and it it's not necessarily the blood in the vomit needs to be checked out, but baby should be checked and that's if they had a nosebleed. Okay. So if they've had a nosebleed, they might swallow some blood. It explains the blood in the vomit, but why are they having a nosebleed? Yeah. So again, that should be checked out as well. If there's a green or yellow vomit, so if it's stained green or yellow, this is a sign that there's bile in the vomit. Bile gets produced on the other side of the stomach. So if there's bile coming back into the stomach and then getting vomited out, we need to understand is there a potential in intestinal blockage? It may be that actually the formula baby's on is reacting with their stomach acid and causing that colour. It may be that there's bile there. And it, if there's bile there, it needs to be checked out. So these things are better safe than sorry. And, you know, doctors are absolutely phenomenal when we go to them with specific questions. They're never going to turn away a parent. Who is worried about their baby for a specific reason they would prefer you to be safe you know prefer safe than sorry all the time um if there's any lumps in your baby's tummy on the lower abdomen if you can see you know they they, the medics call it a palpable mass so literally like a little ball a lump of stuff that isn't moving over a day or two it could be constipation Mm -hmm. or it could be a sign that there is some other blockage maybe in the intestines that needs um Need dealing with okay. frequent vomiting only in the morning. Um, if baby's head circumference is increasing more than it should, and these are general systemic things that we need to be looking out for. And I had another one. Yeah, so if baby is losing weight, if they're dehydrated, if they're not passing stools, again, if they're not even passing urine as well, it's really important to get seen very quickly. This could be that pyloric stenosis. Mm -hmm. which is the lower valve of the stomach being clamped shut. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of the major red flag symptoms. They don't happen very often, um, but it is, or actually the other one, if projectile vomiting starts suddenly. Okay. So if baby hasn't been projectile vomiting and all of a sudden just starts and and it doesn't stop, again, that could be another sign of an intestine blockage or the pyloric valve being shut, being clamped shut.
0: And blood in stool is... Yeah, so we have
1: dark, if there's black blood in the stool and it's shortly after any of those explainable reasons for drinking blood, that could be okay. If there's bright red blood, always go to the doctor immediately. That indicates
0: a bleed from the lower, from the intestines somewhere. Okay, thank you. So just to like summarize, there's so much information. I really do like encourage people to get your um, ebook, to follow you and to check out your social media pay, uh, platforms. Is there anything like some salient points you just want to summarize on? Um, I, I'll just say that in your ebook, there's so much information about supporting both mum and dad and dad's journey, mum's journey, the how it impacts the relationship. It really is incredibly holistic. You know, it looks, it ta- you take into consideration everything, which is really amazing. Um, but is there anything you just wanted to leave us on before we end? Yeah. Well, well, first of all,
1: the most important thing is to understand for 90% of babies, when we understand the cause, we can resolve it. Yeah. Okay. And it is, it's a process to go through the understanding, but the effort for a week is well worth the lifetime of happiness. You know, if, if I was around when I needed me, I'd have bitten my hand off, I really would. Mm -hmm. But two things I want to leave everybody with is first of all, trust yourself. Mm -hmm. You are the expert in your child. I know about reflux, which is why I work with my clients. I don't tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. We have to do this in conjunction every time. If you feel your baby is a bit more unsettled than they should be, then they probably are, you know? so trust yourself you're the world's leading expert in your child and to give a little reframe as well if you do one thing from now on is stop calling your baby a reflux baby they're a baby with reflux yeah and that's because a reflux baby is defined by their reflux Mm. If your child has reflux, it's something they can get rid of. This is working with your own subconscious Mm. to just change how you see your baby. They're a child who has reflux, you know, it's not the the reflux doesn't have them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Language is so powerful. And I think just the way you described it is a symptom. It's a symptom. It's the body trying to communicate some kind of imbalance or it's going through a certain growth development stage and it needs a little bit of understanding and help. And that opens up a whole new approach. A hundred percent. Beautiful. (sighs) Beautiful. thank you so much so much information we lost connection in the middle by the way but I'll edit that together and hopefully <laughs> people know because I've just told them but um that was my fault thank you so much for your time thank you very much for having me Annie it's been really
1: really nice talking about it
0: yeah amazing and I feel like there's so much more we could have gone off and branch off into but um I will put all your details in the show notes so people know exactly where they can find you and yes thank you so much you are more than welcome thank you for having me and to everybody you know
1: do whatever you can in the lockdown and smile yes another great one just find a reason to
0: smile yeah Yeah, a hundred percent take care thank you you are more than welcome and thank you for having me